Well, I have good news for you to, today. Um, I remembered to take my watch off and put it here on the lectern, so that might have a little impact on uh, what goes on for the next few minutes. I want to add my words of welcome to those that have already been offered by John and others that uh, we're glad you're here. If you're a newcomer, especially, we're glad you're here. If you're someone who's come and is not yet a Christian, we, are, we want you to know that we're glad you're here, and we hope you will come back again every week. Uh, I want to ask a favor of you. Um, there is a, um, a, an online church uh, thing called Community Church Builder, CCB, um, uh, that was rolled out to this congregation a while back, and very few of you have put your picture on there to go with your name. And since I'm a forgetful old man, I'm going to ask you, if it's a favor to me, please, if you would put your picture on that church community builder, okay? And if you say, what in the world is church community builder, then you need to talk to Monty. <laughs> he, will, he will straighten you out, help you uh, to do that, okay? It would be a big help uh, to Sally and me. Um, last uh, Lord's Day, it was my privilege to open for you a text about transitions from um, Moses uh, to Joshua. And in that sermon, uh, I raised the question about what is your attitude toward this transition time? Uh, is your attitude one of survival? I hope we can make it without EC. That would be understandable. Is your attitude, well, I hope we can hold our own. Maybe we won't grow and increase, maybe we won't diminish, maybe that's the most we can expect. But I ask you to think about flourishing, to, to think about flourishing in this time of transition. And you might say, my goodness, Alan, how could that be? Would that be a possibility? And the answer is, well, God is your God, and this is His church that He created for His glory. And certainly, with the blessing of God, uh, the outpouring of God's Spirit, the working of God in the individual members of this congregation, yes, it could happen. And so I challenge you to think in terms of flourishing, not floundering and flaking out and faltering. Because I believe God wants Jalem Valley Church, Presbyterian Church, to flourish during this time of transition. God does things through the weak, People and at weak times, why? To get glory for himself. So when Gideon was going to fight a battle, God said, you've got too many people. If you, if you fight this battle with all those people and win, you will think you did it. You've got to get smaller. And he got smaller and God said, no, you still got too many. Get smaller. <laughs> and he got down to what, 300 and won a great victory, and God got great glory. You can flourish in a time of transition. It happened to Israel in Egypt, and it can happen to Chehalem Valley during this season of change. Remember, there is an analogous relationship between the history of Israel and churches and individuals today. What happened to Israel in some sense happens to us. Here's an illustration of that. Jesus, when He began His ministry, did what? He went out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Israel, when it became a nation in Exodus 1, what did it do? 
It went out into the wilderness and was tried and tested as well. So I want us to think today about flourishing during transition. Egypt flourished, Israel flourished, you can flourish. Let me ask you this. Do you want to flourish? You say, that's a crazy question. No, it's not. I've been around a lot of congregations in my life, and there's some congregations just don't want to grow, don't want to grow in number, don't want to grow in quality, just don't want to grow. They're pretty comfortable just like they are. Because growth is uncomfortable. Prove that, okay? There's a little church in Jerusalem, and then there comes Pentecost, and God added three thousand people to the church in one day. And you're saying, well, Alan, you're not saying that Chalem Valley is going to have 3,000 in one week. No, I'm not saying that. But I'm making the point that God sometimes does amazing things for His glory. And He could do them here. Do you want that? Would you pray for that? Would you work for that? Would you welcome that? Let's pray and we'll look at Exodus 1 and then think about this. Father, we turn to You. You're the fountainhead of all good and perfect gifts. It's about you and your glory, not about us and our glory and our comfort. And I pray that you will stir us with your word and your spirit, that you use a redeemed crooked stick to show the narrow way of the Lord Jesus. And Lord, you will help us to want for this church everything that you want. And we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. So Exodus 1 at... Um, verse 1, let me remind you, we believe the Bible is the Word of God written, the only infallible rule of faith and practice. Sorry, I've got, here we go. All right. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan and Naphtali. Gad and Asher, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they, they, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and set them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God, 
and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers will fade, but this is God's word. It won't fade. It will abide forever and forever. Many of you know that the Apostle Paul had a young associate that he was mentoring named Timothy. And when he writes to Timothy, he often is encouraging Timothy to keep on keeping on. He's often encouraging relatively timid Timothy to be bold and to persevere. Paul knows that difficult times will come, and so he warns Timothy ahead of time so that the shock factor of persecution will be diminished when it actually comes upon him. Indeed, in one place he says to Timothy, Indeed... All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Why does he say that? So when the persecution comes, he won't be surprised. Now he doesn't say, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted if you live in the first century. Or if you live in the time of the Egyptian captivity. He just says pretty blankly, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Why is that? Well, Mark Twain has an answer for us. I don't take him as a great theologian. He actually didn't like religion, and especially he didn't like Presbyterians, okay? But we won't go into all of that. But he said in one place, there's nothing we tolerate so poorly as a good example. I think that's really true. Have you ever been to a party and you're on a diet and somebody there says they're looking at the dessert table and they say, no, I'm going to refrain. You think, goodness gracious, I don't want a good example right now, right? What do good examples do? Well, they just exasperate us, don't they? But you know, theologically even, that's pretty close. Listen to what John wrote in his first letter. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. His brother was a good example. And he killed him. He says, do not be surprised, brothers, if the world hates you. Why? Because you'll be a good example to the world. And they will hate you. More importantly, God hates us when we're his people, because there is a God-placed enmity between the children of God and others. Genesis 3.15 says that. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. And that enmity expresses itself in various ways at various times, but it's always there, and we make a great mistake if we forget it. And if we think, well, we're at peace with the world. We are never at peace with the world. It may be waxing and waning the enmity that is shown us. 
But in a culture like today, when there's open hostility between, toward Christians and the Christian faith, we do well to remember that. Now, there was enmity between Israel and the Egyptians, and we should not be surprised that it's here and it's expressed in this way in Exodus 1 because Genesis 3.15 is there and is true. And just as there was then, there is, as I say today. Let me remind you of a couple of things about Israel and Egypt, and then I want to dig into the text in a place or three. They were in a time of transition of leadership, right? Joseph had died. Moses will be called in chapter 3. Uh, they were in a transition of leadership, just like you are in a transition of leadership here. Um, um, they they um, had been taken, you might say, into Egypt so that the people would have a place to go and food to eat when famine came. And Joseph had been elevated to the place of number two in the kingdom of Egypt, an amazing thing. But Joseph had died. And now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. The people were without advocacy among the political powers that then existed. Now this Egyptian king who's not identified in this passage, uh, was afraid of the Israelites because of their number, uh, too many and too mighty in verse 9, because the possibility they might rebel against Israel if there was an uprising and a battle uh, with an an, uh, exterior uh, force coming to attack them. And, And then he was worried, I think, about losing them. They're a great asset, right? Uh, There's a lot of manpower among them, you might say. Israel had leaders. Chapter 3, verse 16 tells us they had elders. But they don't have a key leader figure like Joseph or Moses or Abraham or somebody like that. And they're not yet in the promised land. They're on the way. They're bound, you might say. They are in process as you and I are in process, okay? Okay. Israel obviously flourished while they were in Egypt. How? How did they flourish? How did it happen? Well, they flourished, and that's what I want to spend the rest of the time answering the question. How did Israel flourish in Egypt? They flourished in number and strength. They went down into Egypt, 70 people. Uh, Exodus 12 and other places tells they came out 600,000 men besides the women and children. How many would that have been? Two million, that's a very conservative estimate if there's 600,000 men. Uh, Maybe four million, five million, it's hard to say. But they came out a mighty nation. They went down a family, they came out a nation. Deuteronomy 10.22, your fathers went down to Egypt 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of the sky which of course was what? God's promise to Abraham, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars of the sky. Okay, it says in verse 7 here, the people were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. But why was that? Why was that? Why did they multiply and be fruitful and increase greatly? Why weren't the Egyptians increasing at the same rate? Well, it was the grace of God, the mercy of God. You remember back in Genesis chapter 30, there's a story of Jacob and Laban and the multiplication of Jacob's flocks and and Laban's flocks are not uh, 
not growing as fast, nearly as fast as the flocks of Jacob? It's the grace of God, the mercy of God. They are multiplying. God is making them into a great nation. Could something similar to that happen here? Well, I think it could. God's still God. I don't see why it couldn't. I mean, I passed a sign driving down here today in uh, uh, Sherwood that said, uh, why not live in Newburgh? It's only eight minutes away and real estate's cheaper. It's an old sign, by the way. I think real estate down here is kind of jacked up a little bit later, lately. So when, when I was pastor at Faith Church, Birmingham, Alabama, there was a time when we sold our old building, uh, bought a new site that was kind of next door to the old one, but we sold the old building and we had to move out uh, and worship in a, 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 high, a junior high gymnasium for um, a, a, a nine months, ten months while we were building the building. And uh, I challenged the people as we moved out of the old facility to think in terms of flourishing, not just existing. And uh, we, we, uh, we had a, a, early, a service at 8 o'clock and a service at, I don't know, 1045, 11 o'clock, whenever. And so in order to make everybody mad, when we moved into the interim facility, we had one service at 9 a.m., right? So everybody could be hacked off that their worship time wasn't there. And I challenged them. I said, we can grow. We can advance in this time of, of pilgrimage. Think of, think of ourselves as pilgrims. And there was some uh, consternation among the people in the first Sunday four miles away, different worship time, a visitor showed up. Now, I don't know if the pastor of that church said, I told you so, but I know he was thinking it, <laughs> right? I know he was thinking it. I want to I be able to say to you some months down the road, I told you so, I told you so, it could happen. I read a book that... Um, some of you probably read this book, Living in the Gap Between Promise and Reality by Ian Duguid. Some of you read that book, maybe. If you haven't, it's a great book. And he says in there one time, in one place, he says this. He says, what if God wants more for your church than you want? Wow! What if God wants more for your church than you want? Embarrassed me, and I was the leader of the church. What if he does? How do you know he doesn't? You don't. I'm sure you can flourish during this time of transition. I don't know if you will. I don't know what God's hidden will is. I know his revealed will is that there's a number that no one can count. And what we're supposed to be about is gathering some of that number into his church and growing them in their relationship to the Lord. Do you want that? Are you eager for that? Would you work for that? Are you even praying for that? What are you praying for? So they flourished while they were in Egypt. They flourished, secondly, despite their affliction. They, per, uh, per, uh, they flourished despite their affliction. This affliction had been prophesied to Abraham in Genesis 15. Then the Lord God said to Abraham, Know for a certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. 
your interim won't be 400 years. You got that, right? Okay. You, for 400 years you'll be afflicted, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. God prophesied the affliction. God prophesied the growth. God prophesied that they would come out. And Israel remembered this. It was something, if you look in the Scriptures, Psalm 105, Psalm 106, Deuteronomy 26, that was read earlier. A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number. And there he became a nation, great and mighty and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid laid on us hard labor. And God blessed us and we grew. How did that happen? And it's a prophetic affliction. It's a foreshadowing of the affliction that we experience today, that churches experience today, that people, individual Christians experience today. They, 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 they flourished, and then secondly, they flourished despite their affliction. Thirdly, I want to suggest to you they flourished because of their affliction. They flourished because of their affliction. Now, in Exodus 1, verse 12, it says this, The more they were oppressed the more they multiplied, and the more they spread. Now, I know that's just a statistical correlation. There's not a causal relationship stated there, but it's certainly implied, it's certainly implied, it's certainly hinted at that there was something about the affliction that caused their growth. Hmm. Certainly there are two truths about affliction that we need to realize. Here's the first. Affliction builds character in the people of God. Affliction builds character in the people of God. Hebrews 12, verse 11, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Who is the Christian that does not at one time or another endure some kind of pain, some kind of affliction, some kind of problem, some kind of difficulty? The answer is there are not any. And a lot of people wonder, well, you know, God could have made it where nobody had any pain or problems. Dear friend, that's the world to come, not this world. That world's coming. That world's promised. That world is secure. It will happen. But that's not this world. A pastor, he was really an ungifted pastor, told me one time. He said, Alan, I want to tell you something. You need to treat everybody like their heart's breaking. I said, why? He said, because it probably is. There's a whole pastoral theology in that, isn't there? There is. Because everybody has problems. Everybody has pain. Everybody has difficulties. Why? Well, a part of the problem, it's a mystery, I will admit that, but a part of the problem is that we grow from those. We grow from those, right? So so when, when, when James wrote his letter... Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
You see, the picture there is you won't be a, a mature Christian without the trials and the testing. Jesus was not a mature sacrifice without the testing in the wilderness. And you get the similar thing in various places in the New Testament. Uh, in Romans chapter 5, um, it says this, um, if I can find verse 3, which is where I want to start. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing, suf knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. They flourish because of their affliction, and I think God wanted them to be afflicted so that they would mature, so that they would grow, so that they would be complete. Every person in this room this morning has got pain and problems in your life. I don't know what those pain and what the pain and problems are in your life. That's one of the beauties of being a rookie pastor, rookie to a new congregation, you know. Uh, I don't know where the fights are. I don't know where the problems are yet, but I will. But I know you've got them. And I know one of the reasons why is so that God can so show you His weakness, your weakness, and His strength. 2 Corinthians 12 talks a lot about that. And their, their affliction, so two truths about affliction, it builds character, but affliction, their affliction drew the attention and the help of God. Exodus 3, then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to the good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I have also seen the oppression which the Egyptians, with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Those, those are both still true. Affliction builds Christian character for those who've been trained by it. And the affliction of God's people draws the attention of God and the power of God to them. Fourthly, they flourish because of prayer. They flourish because of prayer. Exodus 2, during those days, those many days, the king of Egypt died and, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. They cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Deuteronomy 26, Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers. Then the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil and our oppression. What we learned from that? Just very quickly, I won't go into this. We learned that prayer is a means of grace. We learned that prayer is a confession of weakness and need. And, and a humbling of ourselves. That's the reason a lot of people can never pray. They're not humble enough to pray. They're never willing to admit to God, I can't do this. I can't raise this kid. I can't fix my marriage. I can't endure my job. I can't... Yeah, well, when you get to that point, and you say, God, can you help? And God's your covenant God. That's when God's ready to help. And you think, you know, I can do this. Don't, don't, don't think that way. God's going to say, okay, go try. Ooh. Some of us have fallen flat, flat on our faces trying to do that. Prayer is a means of grace. Prayer is a confession of weakness and thus a humbling of ourselves. It's a lifeline to help, or better, lifeline to a helper. And it's a confession of faith. Prayer is a confession of faith. 
that I believe, God, that you love your people and you want to help them. Fifthly, they flourish because of God's covenant commitment to them. Uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time explaining what a covenant is. I think that will come up in a later sermon or sermons somewhere. But a covenant is like a marriage covenant or like a, like a contract. And, and we see that in these passages because God covenantally committed himself when he said to these people, when he said, I will be a God unto you and to your seed after you. Just like a, a man says to a woman, I will be a biblical husband to you all the days of our lives. And a woman says, I will be a biblical wife to you all the days of our lives. In Deuteronomy 26, it's, he's called the God of our fathers. The God who covenantally committed himself to be the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and all the rest. In Exodus 22 verse 24, it says, God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. How does that apply to us? Well, if you're a Christian, God has said to you, I will be your God. I will be your God. To this congregation, he said, I will be a God unto this congregation. And then lastly, sixthly, they flourish because of God's powerful presence with them. Exodus 3.12, I will be with you. I talked about that last week. God said to the disciples at the Great Commission, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. God poured out the Holy Spirit at Pentecost so that he would be with us. So your attitude could be an attitude of survival. It could be an attitude of maintenance. Or you could trust God to cause CVP to flourish during this time. Both individually you could flourish and as a congregation. Why not choose to trust God to cause CVP to flourish? Why not pray for that, desire that, long for that, work for that? I think the scriptures support it. I think church history shows it. You know the statement, many of you, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It certainly was true in the New Testament church. Jesus died and the lives of the disciples were turned upside down. And then all of them died, at least all but one maybe, died as martyrs if tradition's correct. You look at the church in China today, they're flourishing. The church in Islamic lands today is flourishing Why? Because God is greatly glorified when the weak, the afflicted, are helped by His power. I challenged Evergreen Church when I was their interim with this series of questions. Suppose God was going to begin a revival in the United States. Where do you think he would begin it? And usually when you ask a question like that, they say, well, he would begin it in the Bible Belt or something. No, I've lived there. There's a lot of problems down there. Could be, but I doubt it. Where would God, then I'd follow that up with this question. Where would God get the most glory with starting a revival in the United States of America? might be in the least churched part of the United States of America. Do you think? 
Surely God could do that. If you think God couldn't do that, we need to have another talk, okay? This sermon won't cover that one. But surely God could do that in the Pacific Northwest. Let's, let's, uh, let's, 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 there's a southern expression. You know this, shuck it down to the cob? Do you know that expression? I don't know if you know that, but you get it down to the nitty-gritty. If God was going to start a revival in Newburgh, where would he start? Almost every person I ever ask that question answers it this way, somewhere else. It's always somewhere else, right? It wouldn't be with us. It wouldn't be in Newburgh. It wouldn't be in Portland. It would be somewhere else. (laughs) Dear people, you're not God. God is God. God can start anywhere with anybody at any time. He gets great glory, and what happens to us? We get great joy, right? The glory of God and the joy of God's people are not two things. They're really one. So the question is, do you want joy? Do you want joy? Do you want the glory of God? Do you believe that what happened in Exodus 1 and with the nation of Israel could happen in your individual life? or in the life of this congregation. Let's pray. Lord, our God, we thank you that you can. That just as Paul's thorn in the flesh was a messenger to make him depend on you and know that when he was weak, you are strong. I pray that this time in the life of CVP will cause them to lean on you in a way deeper and more profound than never before. And Lord, I pray that you will cause this congregation to flourish in the time of transition because you're God and because you can and because you like to be glorified and you like to see your people happy about you and what you're doing in the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.